Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Close Readings Podcast. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it's my great uh, honor today to have Sarah Dowling on the podcast. Um, the, the poem that Sarah has chosen for us to read today is called True Value by the poet uh, Liz Howard. And, um, and it occurs to me that this may be the first time on the podcast. I mean, I say maybe because I'm, uh, there's some question about when episodes get released. It's certainly the first time I've recorded an episode of the podcast in which the poem under discussion is by a, um, a living contemporary poet which is a wonderful thing. I was um, joking around with Sarah before about how somebody asked me, um, somebody who'd been following the podcast asked me, um, oh, is this meant to be a podcast that only discusses the work of dead poets? And I, <laughs> and I laughed and thought, no, but um, I, I, I guess that is what's happened. And I'm excited today um, to get to remind our listeners as though they needed reminding that poetry is a living art being um that that is thriving um today and and we'll hear and discuss um an example of that um in in our conversation today um so um but 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 before we get to the poem let me tell you a little bit about sarah dowling she's the um author of three poetry collections um security posture down and then most recently a book called entering sappho which was published by coach house books and which was a finalist for the Derek Walcott Prize for Poetry. Um, in addition to being a poet, Sarah is also a scholar and a critic. Um, her first scholarly book is called Translingual Poetics, Writing Personhood Under Settler Colonialism, and was published by the University of Iowa Press. Uh, that book is about contemporary poems that use more than one language, and received honorable mention for the Laura Romero First Book Prize from the American Studies Association. Um, Sarah's currently working on another scholarly book called Figure and Ground, which she tells me is forthcoming from Northwestern University Press, and is about the wonderful topic. I mean, it's a fascinating topic to me to hear it described in these terms. It's about the idea of lying down or of bodies on the ground, um, in contemporary literature, and I take it that um, that it will include discussion of poetry, but it won't be um, it won't be um, uh, uh, simply about poetry. It will be about other um, forms of literature as well. Uh, Sarah teaches in Victoria College and the Center for Comparative Literature at the University of Toronto, where, in fact, um, Liz Howard, who's poem, True Value, um, we'll be talking about today, it, um, is currently the Shaftesbury Writer-in-Residence at Victoria College. So I take it that Sarah and um, Liz know each other a bit, and that will be, um, I'm sure, a wonderful perspective for us to, um, to have in today's conversation. Um, so let me say, um, just before uh, we bring Sarah on, a, a brief word about her first scholarly book, Translingual Poetics, and what I think is so important about it. I mean, there's a long history, very long history, in um, poetry and in lyric poetry in particular of thinking about poetry as the kind of um, the essential genre for um, the representation of or the recreation of personhood of what it means to be a self, what it means to be a conscious human. Um, 
And well, with that history in mind, it it struck me in thinking about Sarah's book um, how much we had to gain as a poetry studies community and just more broadly uh, by um, by thinking about how personhood, especially, but of course not exclusively in the Americas, is far richer and more nuanced than a monolingual poetry studies could ever describe. Um, and so I think Sarah's book is just a, a hugely important step in a direction that poetry studies needs to take, um, a step towards um, thinking about personhood in all of its uh, multilingual richness and complexity. Um, I say that as a poetry studies scholar myself. I say it also as somebody who has a multilingual background. And, um, and so I have this very kind of personal... Um, desire to get to think more about poetry um, from the perspective of more than one language, um, even within the space of a single poem, um, right? So thinking about poems in which more than one language appear. Um, so, um, well, with that um, uh, all said, uh, I want to welcome you, Sarah, to the podcast. Sarah Dowling, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you doing, comrade? I'm doing okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. It's always um, exciting for me to get to have one of these conversations. Um, we were saying earlier how um, you and I are, are people who've known each other from a distance sort of before um, today's conversation. I suppose we're still at a bit of a, a, a distance, but it doesn't feel that way quite as much today, getting to see your image on my screen and get, getting to hear your voice. Um, in my ears. Um, so I'm, um, I'm doing better now that I get to talk with you. <laughs> well, me too. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm so grateful for your kind words about my work. You know, I, I was saying before, but I'll say it again. Um, I see a real kinship between uh, some of your projects and my own. And I think that the way that you think about lyric and about personhood in your writing is so rich and so generative. And I'm just a huge admirer um, of your scholarship and also of this podcast. It's been <laughs> so lovely to listen to you chatting with other people. And I'm really incredibly thrilled and honored to get to be uh, one of your guests. So thank you very much for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Um, I think the I, I sometimes think about the podcast that the pleasure I um, that I'm getting in doing it must be more than what any of the <laughs> listeners are getting. And it just feels um, like a wonderful indulgence, but I'm, I'm happy to think that you and others have been um, enjoying it as well. Um, so in a, in a moment, um, Sarah, I, um, I'm going to play a recording of um, Liz Howard reading true value. Oh, and I just should say that, um, you know, for people, again, who want to look at the poem as we discuss it, there will be a link um, to the text of the poem in the episode notes. You'll also find links there to Sarah's work. Um, and um, for people who want even more than what can be crammed into those episode notes, remember also that there's a newsletter that goes out with each episode that will have um, some thoughts from me about the conversation and also um, some um, some more uh, resources for you to consult for people who are interested. But before I play the recording, um, Sarah, you and I were talking about how it might be useful for our audience members to hear just a word or two of, um, of context about what it is they're about to hear when they hear the poem. So I wonder if you wouldn't be willing to 
preface the recording in that way for us? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, So I thought it would be helpful to start just by introducing Liz Howard a little bit, since, as you said, Kamran, she is um, possibly the first living poet to be discussed (laughs) on the podcast pending the order in which the episodes are released. Um, So it may be that uh, some listeners haven't had the chance to read her work yet. Um, So Liz Howard is the author of two poetry collections, which uh, have been uh, very highly acclaimed. Uh, The first one is called Infinite Citizen of the Shaking Tent, and it was published in 2015. It went on to win the 2016 Griffin Poetry Prize and to be shortlisted for the Governor General's Award for Poetry. Uh, So in Canada, these are pretty much the two biggest awards for a a poetry collection. And in fact, um, it was the first time that a debut collection had ever received the Griffin Poetry Prize when Mm. Liz Howard won it. So this was really greeted as just an incredible achievement. And um, that collection is so incredible. It's so amazing. It's got this really sort of crystalline verbal density combined with this like incredibly propulsive sense of intelligence and Mm. I was saying before to Kamran that I remember when I first read one of the poems from Infinite Citizen of the Shaking Tent uh, online just frantically messaging back and forth with my (laughs) friend the poet Divya Victor like did you know you could do this in a poem we were both so excited to see this work isn't that a such a thrilling kind of moment when you discover a new not just a new poet but a new um resource that poetry has and and then you want to share it with a friend absolutely no both of us just read the poem and kind of turned immediately to each other like we needed to be in conversation Mm. about Mm -hmm. this work because we were both just amazed by what Liz had achieved on the page and just Mm -hmm. so awed by what she was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I interrupted. So yeah, go on. Oh no, that's okay. Um, So she, she had devised this incredible way of writing with infinite citizen of the shaking tent. Uh, In 2021, she publishes her second collection letters in Mm -hmm. a bruised cosmos, uh, which is where the poem true value appears. Uh, This collection was also a finalist for the Griffin and for the Trillium Book Award. And what's amazing about this collection is actually how different it is from her Mm. first one. So this is always something I really admire about a writer is when they're constantly kind of reinventing their practice and pushing themselves in unforeseen directions. Um, So we see, again, the same kind of verbal density and this attraction to kind of uh, polysyllabic words, but here the collection is much more narrative, much more seemingly personal. Mm-hmm. It um, takes a, a kind of a freer approach to the use of the white space of the page. So there are many similarities between the two collections, but um, Letters in a Bruised Cosmos really goes in a different direction um, right. than Infinite Citizen of the Shaking Tent did. Um, So one of the things that's kind of common to the two collections um, is that they're both bringing uh, Western science and Anishinaabe cosmology and land-based knowledge together, Mm. um, both kind of at the level of the word and at a higher conceptual level. Um, Mm -hmm. 
So Liz herself is of settler and Anishinaabe heritage. Um, She's an Indigenous person originally from Treaty 9 territory in Northern Ontario, although, as we were saying, she currently lives in Toronto. Right. Um, And in terms of the kind of content of the poem that we're going to hear, of true value specifically, um, the poem discusses things that might happen um, in the aftermath of a sexual assault. So there's nothing kind of graphic uh, in what we'll hear in the recording, Um, but the poem um, encourages us to think about the circumstances of a legal trial and replicates some of the structures of questioning that are used there. Um, So that may be helpful for folks to know before we launch into the recording. Yeah, I th- I, th- I think that's very useful. I mean, um, not just that last bit, but all of that is useful information. But um, but in terms of the content of the poem, I suppose we thought for um, for listeners who might have uh, sensitivity to material like that, or who have um, children around, or whatever, that it might be worth just sort of keeping in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so now I'll um, I'll I'll play the recording of Liz Howard reading True Value and. Um, um, this recording was sort of part of the um, the publicity around the um, the Griffin Poetry Prize um, shortlisting that Sarah mentioned um, in introducing Howard to us, um, and I'll I'll provide a link to the recording as well so that people can um, uh, because there's video that goes along with it, um, which you know obviously you won't get on the podcast, but uh, for those who want to see as well as listen, I'll I'll provide that link. Here's Liz Howard. I'm Liz Howard, and I'm going to be reading my poem, True Value, from my collection, Letters in the Bruised Cosmos. It borrows a line from the great poet Anne Boyer. True Value. The sky was never my court date. If I died once, if I left the body, habeas corpus, this is not my grave. The value in a dead woman is that she cannot be killed again or cross-examined. The value in being the dead woman at trial is the crown doesn't represent you regardless. The value in being dead is that it's impolite to speak ill of you. What is called wellness, victim witness, a swab taken of every orifice, Were there any identifying marks? Were you in fact on the moon that night, Miss Howard? Did you make a choice? I made a cut. It released something. I broke the line. So that was Liz Howard reading the poem, True Value, um, an extraordinary poem, I think, Sarah. So thank you for um, bringing it to my attention. It wasn't one I knew uh, before we scheduled this conversation. Um, I have lots of questions for you about it, and I'm sure you have lots of thoughts you want to share. Um, before we um, dive in, though, um, so she mentions in that recording that the poem borrows a line from the poet and uh, and Boyer and um, I wasn't um, you know aware of what the reference was, but I, th- I thought maybe you might be, and I don't know if it seems worthwhile uh, to provide that context to our audience. 
Sure. So it wasn't a, a reference I got immediately either, but I turned to my copy of Letters in a Bruised Cosmos and looked it up in the acknowledgments. Yeah. Um, and I learned there that uh, there is a line borrowed from Anne Boyer's poem, What Resembles the Grave But Isn't. <clears throat> Pardon me. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a prose poem that's not too long. Um, it's written, I believe, as one continuous sentence that's about a paragraph long. Mm -hmm. And maybe I will just read the first little bit of it just to give a flavor, um, because I think it resonates in an interesting way with true value. Uh, So it begins, always falling into a hole, then saying, okay, this is not your grave, get out of this hole. Getting out of the hole, which is not the grave, falling into a hole again, saying, okay, this is also not your grave, get out of this hole. Getting out of that hole, falling into another one, sometimes falling into a hole within a hole or many holes within holes, getting out of them one after the other, then falling again, saying, this is not your grave, get out of the hole. Sometimes being pushed, saying, you cannot push me into this hole, it is not my grave, and getting out defiantly, then falling into a hole again without any pushing. And it goes on from Mm -hmm. there for Mm -hmm. about two more times as long, kind of along similar lines. Um, So it's a very interesting poem, and I think we can link it as well. Um, And maybe gives some feeling as to the kinds of uh, sort of attitudes or postures that we might infer are sort of at play in true value also. That makes sense to me. And so I'm sure listeners caught it, but I suppose the line she has in mind is in, in Liz Howard's poem is the, this is not my grave line, which becomes, um, well, a version of that becomes a kind of, um, leitmotif or something in, in the Ian Boyer, um, text that you read from a kind of repeated phrase. Yes, that's right. Um, okay. That, that's, that's, that's good to know. Um, I like sometimes before diving right into like the poem's first lines or whatever, to just do a little bit of description of the poem. Um, yeah. Sort of as, as um, for, especially for maybe Sarah, for people who aren't able to look at it as they listen. Um, um, I noticed for one thing that the poem, that this is a poem, which when you see it on the page, you're struck by how short its lines are. Like it's a very sort of skinny and spare poem. Yes. Um, are there other things that you're noticing that might be useful to, to say just by way of just sort of describing the whole to, to our audience? Yeah. So it is a very skinny and spare poem, particularly so round about the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, the longest lines have only seven words and they're mm. near the beginning and the end. Right. Um, and then toward the middle, there are some lines that really only have about two words. So it's yeah. a, a kind of narrow band it's working with. Um, I see one 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 line that's even just one word, right? Regardless, I guess that's it's That's right. Yeah, right. Okay. Yes, there's yeah. one that has only one. Yes, you're yeah. right. Oh, all right, good. Um, what else? The other thing I would note about it, which I think comes across somewhat in um, the reading of it that we heard, is... Um, It's neither double-spaced nor single-spaced. It's got a kind of funny amount of space. And at first I thought that that was just, you know, the way it was printed. But um, I was thumbing through Letters in a Bruised Cosmos in preparation for our conversation. And um, it's different than the other poems, some of which are for sure single-spaced. And Uh others do kind of 
more innovative things with spacing. So that signaled to me that the amount of space in it is quite deliberate. Like it has, it adds something to the pacing of the poem, both in the reading that we heard and visually. It's like, there's something a little bit sort of pausey or a bit slower than perhaps it would otherwise be. Right. And and I'm so glad you said that because I was struck, um, you know, you what, well, when you suggested this poem to me, you shared the link, which is the same link I'll provide to our audience members. And right, when I was looking at the link, I, I noticed the space between the lines and I thought, oh, is that just the way the website is formatting this poem or something? Yeah. Um, but no, it isn't. So so it seems like it's a deliberate choice. And sure, I, I, I'm sure there are all kinds of implications that that um, choice might have uh, that we, like you say, perhaps hear in the recording. But it's, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that. So good. Um, anything else? I mean, but, um, sort of by way of description, or or maybe we should just move into the beginning? What do you think? Um, well, one thing I, I might say, uh, before we move in is, um, at the beginning, the lines are all end stopped, the first five lines mm-hmm. all end in a period. Um, and then we go into a section of the poem where there's a lot more enjambment. So the sentence right. is carrying on across the line break. Um, and then it shifts into a section where it turns into questions right. um, before going back to some end stopped, slightly longer lines at the very end. Yeah. Um, so those are just things that kind of immediately catch the eye, I think, right. at first glance. But we can probably talk about them more um, as we get into how the poem is structured. Terrific. Yeah. Um, OK. All good things to keep in mind, I think. Um, maybe maybe we can start with that first and stopped line, which is right. So the first line of the poem, a complete sentence. Um a, a, a um, in, intriguingly mysterious kind of sentence, I think maybe particularly before you've read the poem um, entirely, though I have to say the mystery is not abated for me, <laughs> having read the poem more than once now. The sky was never my court date, period. Line ends. And as you say before, not only does the line end, but there's a little gap there before we get to the second line. So, you know, really that, I mean, I don't want to suggest that end stop always means X, you know, or always <laughs> has effect X, but it does seem like in this case, at least what we're getting is that sort of statement, at least for the moment, isolated on its own without any kind of helpful context. Um so, Sarah, what do, you, what do you notice in that first line? What strikes you? Well, one thing I really love about it is it sort of announces, like, you're in the realm of poetry now. You know, so many poems uh, kind of emulate plain spokenness or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, there's something really wonderfully uh, not of this realm about this line. Grammatically, there's nothing difficult to understand about it. You know, there's not Mm -hmm. a word you need to look up in the dictionary or a kind of inversion of how we think syntax is supposed to go. It's very straightforward in those terms. So what what signals poetry to you then, (laughs) given all of that? Well, 
Normally, we don't associate the sky with a court date. Those are two things that are uh, not really similar to each other, not really of the same realm. And Um, the statement, the sky was never my court date, suggests somehow that before the poem began, there was the possibility that it was or that it had been or the suggestion that it had been. And and this is sort of negating that idea, which as you say, is not an idea anyone is likely to have had. Um, Yeah, so the negation there is really interesting because it kind of sounds like it's contradicting something that came before, like that that someone had proposed that this was the case and then the speaker comes in and announces that Mm -hmm. that's incorrect. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a kind of interesting contrast too in the sort of openness or expansiveness of the sky and the sort of definitiveness of a court date like right. this is a, a single and probably singular occasion um so legally th- defined a sort of yes, bureaucratic um, very bureaucratic yeah. yes so there's a between the beginning and the end of the line there's quite a high level of contrast yeah Uh, Not just in the sort of realm these things are coming from, but what they might signal or their sort of resonances or associations. I wondered if there was the possibility of there being any kind of um, ambiguity or irony just in the phrase court date. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Clearly... And I mean, especially clearly given the way the rest of the poem goes, the primary referent of that phrase is the the legal appointment, right? Uh, According to which one is asked to appear and um, um, participate in a legal proceeding, Mm -hmm. a court date. Um, uh, Poetry, lyric poetry has long been concerned with other kinds of courtly affairs and um and and i don't know does date have some kind of ironic um double uh meaning here gesturing towards a kind of romantic um assignation or something like that um uh I, i don't know if any of that seems present to you here and if so what we would do with it I hadn't thought about that until Mm -hmm. you had mentioned it, but Mm -hmm. I did note that later with the reference to the crown, which we'll get to, that um, the most kind of on the surface meaning of that, and, you know, I'll say more about it, but um, in the Canadian legal context, um, not only is the crown our head of state, but also... um, the prosecutor is usually referred to either as a crown prosecutor or simply ah, as a crown. Right. Um, partly because whom they do represent is the crown. Um, but that's also kind of a literary word, right? Yeah. Like this isn't a sonnet, obviously. Right, right. So it's not really the most kind of straightforward reference to go toward crowns of sonnets or laurel crowns or something right, right. like that. Um, but it's certainly a word that carries those connotations too. And, and um, of course, um, 
that phrase, the crown, I feel like is one of those textbook examples of the rhetorical figure of speech of metonymy too, right? Yes. Yeah. Actually, I, I had wanted to ask you about that because, you know, in high school or as an undergraduate, that was always the kind of first example that came along right. in my education. But I kind of wondered, like, to what extent was that also true for other people? Who um, didn't grow up in... Um, in, in Canada, uh, in yeah, Canada or, or Britain, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's the um, the influence of of Great Britain, but I feel like that um, end of empire. <laughs> but I yes. feel like that example did make it into American education, as I mean, U.S. education, I should say, as well. Um, that and um, sorry, so for people who don't know what what have maybe heard the word metonymy, but are a little fuzzy on what it means. Um, it, it is a, a rhetorical figure, a figure of speech whereby um, uh, the, the reference to the intended thing, the thing that you're talking about, you refer to it by using often a sort of part that's meant to signify the whole. So other textbook examples that I've heard are like when you refer to sales that you see, you know, um, on on the sea where, where what you mean not is not just the sails but of course the ships um mm-hmm. or when when people talk about doing something like a head count maybe mm-hmm. um presumably they're not just counting heads but those heads are attached <laughs> to bodies that's understood um, um or in a political context um when um news anchors say refer to what um um uh what the white house is doing on a, on a given day. Um, they don't mean the, um, the building so much as they mean the, um, executive authority that's housed within that building. Um, so those are some examples of metonymy, but no crown, I think crown did make it to the States. Okay, <laughs> um, good to know. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So I love that. I love that. Um, that distance that you help us see between the first half of the first line and the second half of the first line. Um, you're, um, if, if we could connect um, or maybe talk a little bit about the first um, two or three lines of the poem sort of together, one thing I'm noticing about the second line is that, yes, it's end-stopped, as you said before, but it also has the caesura in the middle. That is, it, the second line, still very short, nevertheless crams sort of two sentences together. Now, both of those sentences are conditional, like they both begin if but they also seem fragmentary. So um, um, if I died once, if I left the body, um, in the third line, we get Latin. Um, uh, So Sarah, talk to us about lines two and three. And if you see a kind of relation, line spacing notwithstanding between the first line and the second and third lines, um, what are you noticing um, there? Well, I think that's really right to point out that although they're both end-stopped, they have a kind of relationship to each other um, that comes through these same beginnings that they have. So Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, some anaphora going on there. If I died once, if I left the body, they both begin the same way. And and that will be a rhetorical device that's used again uh, in the kind of next chunk of the poem. So we're starting to get a pattern established here of how this poem sort of propels itself forward, um, with these similar beginnings of lines. Um, I'm very struck by the sort of 
conditional opening and then breaking off of both of these lines. They both kind of establish a condition and then grind it to a halt right away. There's no right. then for these mm -hmm. ifs. Uh, instead, they kind of stop abruptly with the, the period at the end of the line. Um, mm -hmm. And then they push toward this italicized line in Latin, habeas corpus, um, which I think is really an important moment in the poem. Right. Um, so, so it's the moment where some legal discourse enters the frame, right? Yeah. Talk to us about that. Yeah. yeah. So this is, you know, a very, very important term in law. It's uh, called the great writ sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, it's supposed to protect people who've been accused of a crime against unlawful or indefinite detention. So in other words, it's about the rights of the accused, which mm -hmm. seems a bit surprising in this context, you know, especially when we've heard the rest of the poem, right. uh, we might not feel very attached to the rights of the accused in certain ways. We might feel right. more concerned about the rights of the victim witness um, in this mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. um, so the so kind can of, you account for that surprise in some way or yeah. Yeah, so I was I was trying to find uh, a sort of good translation of the phrase habeas corpus because mm -hmm. it's been a, a long minute since I've <laughs> been able to translate something like that myself. Um, and there are lots of interesting kind of versions of definitions online, like show me the body, you hold the body, that you have the body. These are all kind of different. Right. Um, examples of translations of the phrase um, mm -hmm. that you can sort of come across quite easily with a Google search, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. The kind of real quote unquote translation is like, we command that you should have the detainee's body brought to court. So in other words, right. this is the protection against um indefinite detention is that the legal authority should be able to produce the body of the accused person so that it can be determined whether or not they did something wrong and not kind of just hide that body away forever and ne never right. bring the person right. to trial. So right. it's a, an obligation. Uh, so if, if the, the state accuses authority. you of a crime, it's they're obliged to um, give you the opportunity to have a trial. Yes, right? exactly. Um, right. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. So, um, clearly those terms though, holding the body or, or the, the notion of like, um, ha who has rights to possess the body or present mm -hmm. the body or have access to the body has, a very different kind of um, register or set of associations in the in the context of the um, narrative out of which this poem seems to be coming. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, I I think this is really kind of the crucial thing. So, like the two lines that precede it: "If I died once, if I left the body." the relationship of the I to the body and indeed to life itself right. is troubled here we don't know exactly what circumstance has caused the eye to die once or to leave the body 
but the kind of break or juxtaposition or mm-hmm. paratactic connection of um, between dying and leaving the body to this question of sort of holding the body right. is a very sort of troubling one, especially when we're thinking about that so there's a certain kind of um, protective quality to the writ of habeas yeah. corpus. Right. But but who is protecting this person who has died once and left their body? Right. Um, what kind of safeguards exist there? Right. So that juxtaposition between those two lines, I think, starts to point us toward a very sort of thorny and difficult problem that that this yeah. great writ is certainly, you know, looking out for accused parties but it doesn't seem to be doing much for the person who has left their body and died once. Right. Or at least it's asking us a question about what, you know, protection might look like for them. Oh, that's, that's, that's a really sharp way of putting it, Sarah. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm thinking, you know, unless, unless one is like um, a dualist or something, I mean, in the like, Cartesian sense, right, or mm-hmm. Christian sense, and like, in, unless one believes that there's a soul that's, you know, um, fundamentally distinct from the body, the 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 statement "I left my body" is a kind of um, poorly formed logical paradox or something, <laughs> right? There's once you know that the, the eye is the body, in other words, in in a in a um, not everybody believes that, of course, but mm-hmm. anyway, let's let's just say that that's a familiar notion. And of course, if one has died, who who then is the I that can go on speaking about that fact? Um, I, I my intuition here is that what I mean, first of all, that 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 those standard, more or less standard positions that I just articulated are part of the reason why those conditionals are not finished Mm -hmm. because they approach the limits of thought. (laughs) Um, um, But that also that condition seems, um, and I don't want to do like armchair psychologizing here, but that, that, but I'm tempted to say that those are um, articulating or at the very least describing a, a kind of dissociative, state that um, one hears that victims of violence and perhaps in particular of sexual violence often experience um, mm-hmm. in the aftermath of those um, those attacks. Um, so um, is that d- does that sound resonant to you or what thoughts do you have about that? It, it does sound resonant, resonant, I should say, to me, um, especially the line, if I left the body, I think makes quite mm-hmm. direct reference to those kinds of dissociative states that you're talking about. And um, one thing that I think the poem sort of proposes, especially when read in light of the rest of the collection, mm-hmm. um, is that there there is a real value in being able to go somewhere else, whether in that very literal sense that you're talking about, um, but also just in the sense of 
imagining that there's something beyond the kind of immediate circumstances. Um, So that's one way to kind of think back on the relationship between the sky and the court date is that there is actually a kind of alternative to this very brutal reality, which is as expansive as the sky. And, you know, later on, we might get to talk about um, the question, were you, in fact, on the moon that night, Miss Howard? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, we better uh, talk about that. <laughs> well, I know you love the moon. So. Well, come on. Yeah, I've, I've developed a reputation. Who doesn't love the moon? A, but right, that's a fascinating moment, which we should come back to. But I don't want to get there um, too quickly. So let's um, let's put that to the side for, for just a moment and um and I, we've spent we've spent an awful lot of time, and this is familiar to um, probably to many people who've taught poems in classes where you think, oh, I have so much time, I'm devoting a whole class to this poem, and then you spend the whole class on like the first three lines. Yes, um, uh, time management was never my strongest suit, as my students could tell you. But um, uh, but before we leave those lines behind entirely, um, you know, it occurs to me as we're talking, Sarah, that. Um, your interest in translingual poetics probably is not usually about the presence of like Latin in, <laughs> um, in an, in an otherwise English language text, but we do, I mean, this is a, a, a kind of multilingual poem and that's worth it noting, is. right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, often when we think about multilingual poetry, there's a kind of like, default assumption that we must be talking about like diaspora poetics where English necessarily represents a kind of mainstream, even white stream Mm -hmm. discourse. And the other language um, is something that, um, you know, like a heritage language. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is somehow kind of buried or disadvantaged within that broader context. And that is one mode in which, um, Mm -hmm multilingual texts can operate. But um, one thing I think we see with Latin is that um, whether we, you know, know what the phrase habeas corpus means or not, kind of recognizing it as Latin gives a sort of window into the associations that are carried by languages themselves, which is quite a bit more complex than just, you know, English equals mainstream, other language equals disadvantaged or something like that. Right. Um, So as soon as we see a phrase in Latin, we can start thinking about things like law, science, certain forms of religious authority. So Mm -hmm. even though this is talking about legal authority in particular, it kind of encourages us to reflect a bit more broadly than just the legal context Um, and to think about, you know, different mechanisms of ordering yeah. Oh, great. Um, and okay. how people are positioned relative to those. Well, okay, and that's. Um, I mean, I, I want to keep talking about Latin, but no, I, 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 we can't, we can't do it right now. Um, but, but you have given me like a, a really nice segue, I think, into into inviting you to talk. I mean, it not just in the 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 first um time the word appears in the um one two three four fifth line of the poem the value in a dead woman but that Mm -hmm. word value which of course is um part of the title of the poem too yeah um and the the way that that word invites a um a reckoning of um how 
the self is um, organized or accounted for in this kind of legal or social system that the that the poem inhabits. Um, uh, maybe. Uh, and I realize, as I say this, we're skipping over that line that comes from Boyer, which maybe we can come back to, that this is not my grave mm-hmm. line, which I'm also very curious about. But so f- feel free to talk about either here or anything else besides. But um, what 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 work is the word value doing for you when you first encounter it in this poem? Um, well, it's, you know, very interesting to me because the title true value on the one hand is a hardware store chain i was going Um, to ask you the 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 u.s the south of the border to north of the border question about whether that was a hardware chain in canada as well i wasn't sure we do have them too yes um and uh so it it carries this kind of idea of like you know Mm. maybe a sort of folksy uh kind of small town, every town type of idea, but it also implies false value, right? Like (laughs) if you have true value, then you must also have untrue value. Right. Um, So it kind of brings us to this sense that there are different or conflicting ways of thinking about value, worth, quality, how things are appraised, how value is attributed, Mm -hmm. um, that there is a an actual kind of conflict there. Yeah. Um, so then when we see three times the value in, the value in, the value mm-hmm. in, we're kind of brought back to, you know, what is accepted as true value, what might be contested, um, or the value, mm-hmm. the value that might be contested, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, the way we shift from this is not my grave to the value in a dead woman is a very important moment in the poem. So this is not my grave. Pardon? Oh, sorry. I was just saying, yes, please tell us about the relation between those lines. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So especially when thinking about that, that this line, this is not my grave is pointing us toward the Boyer, which is very insistent. This is Mm -hmm, not my grave. mm -hmm. Um, there's a kind of, you know, refusal to be dead there, which, um, you know, might read as inspiring or something like that. But then we get this discussion with these three sentences that kind of begin with this, uh, kind of anaphora, these, these repeated beginnings that point back to value, um, To me, these read like very, very direct overt references to Edgar Allan Poe's philosophy of composition. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. Tell us. Uh, (laughs) The thing I hated reading the most in graduate (laughs) school. (laughs) Uh, It made me so angry. Uh, My thoughts were unpodcastable, but... um, (laughs) Well, you've had some time to to reflect. I, to, to calm down. Um, but I, I went and pulled the relevant paragraph before our conversation. So the part I'm thinking of is when um, Poe kind of narrates his process of thinking through um, the best uh, topic, the most poetical topic for poetry. Mm. Um, and he kind of goes through his self-questioning 
And then he says, um, the, the answer here also is obvious. Um, the death then of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world. Mm. Um, you know, again, the, the phrase that made me the angriest yeah, of yeah. everything I ever easy, read in graduate Easy to see school. why. Easy to see why that made you angry. Okay, yes. good. Um, but here so we this get, is like turning that on its head or ironizing that in some way. Well, you know, I think it's kind of maybe just exposing it. Even I see um, that actually, although it sounds quite shocking in a certain way, that um, there is actually a value attributed to women being dead. Mm-hmm. Um you know, here's the Poe example. Um, But there's an interesting way, I think, that these sentences don't just totally reject it. Yeah. Um, Because if the speaker were dead, she couldn't be killed again or cross-examined. Right. Um, And it would be impolite to speak ill of her. Mm Yeah. And the kind of question of whether the crown represents her might be a less painful one in Mm. that circumstance. So I think there's something in a way worse than just needing to reject that, you know, we shouldn't be valuing dead women like this. Um, but actually, because this woman is alive, this woman is alive. Yeah. So she can be killed again or cross-examined, and it's not impolite to speak ill of her. Right. In this circumstance. Right. So, Presumably, that's a way of of reminding us or suggesting to us that's quite likely that she is being spoken ill of at this yes. trial. Say. Yeah. Yes, I think that's the implication for sure. Um. You know, another echo I'm hearing um, in this part of the poem, and then again at the end, is of Sylvia Plath and the poem Edge, you know, yeah. one of the, the last poems that Plath wrote, which begins, the woman is perfected, right? And it, and it becomes clear that what Plath is describing in that poem is, is the corpse of a woman. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I know that uh, Liz Howard is very interested in Plath's writing. So yeah. I think that's a very relevant connection. Um, okay. And another place, you know, I know you had discussed kind of similar things on the episode with Katie Cadu as well, um, that there's a very, very well-established tradition of misogyny in lyric, um, (laughs) that that the place of that is really central. And when we see writings like Poe's, it's like so overt and in our faces. Um, But when we see the kind of navigations of that tradition by people like Plath or like Howard, it it's actually not as straightforward as me being mad about it in graduate school. <laughs> well, and as, as and also, I mean, as Katie pointed out, a misogynist, surely, but maybe that's letting poetry off the hook too easily. I mean, mm-hmm. like femicidal yes. is the word she used, right? So it's um, not just the sort of hatred of women, but the killing of women, right? The, um, in 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 the example of Poe, or as Howard sort of is um, deploying those tropes here in this poem, we have the literal objectification of a living being, right? Yes. The, um, the turning that that subject into an object. Yes. Uh, 
Yes, I think that's absolutely what's at play here. And, you know, of course, uh, this poem fits into a broader public discourse, not just a poetic discourse of, about femicide and about mm-hmm. uh, the crisis of murdered and missing Indigenous women, particularly. Um, so a lot of these kind of femicidal tropes that come from the world of lyric are also being turned to speak to a kind of real world situation here um, that's ongoing in this moment as well. Yeah. Um, so um, that's really useful context to have in mind, Sarah, and I'm glad you've 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 made us aware of it. Um, uh, I wonder if I can ask you. Um, well, I don't know if this is skipping too far ahead, and if it is, please tell me and bring us back to something you think we're um, that we do well by noticing before we get there. Um, the the lines where the questions begin. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a sort of interesting, um, and I think you acknowledge this or suggested as much earlier. There's um, there's a kind of shift happening that happens for me in the poem around there. So I guess the first question is what is called wellness victim witness, a swab taken at every, uh, a swab taken of every orifice. Were there any identifying marks? Were you in fact on the moon that night, Miss Howard, did you make a choice? Right? So those are the questions that the poem presents. I mean, one of the things I want to know about that section of the poem is how like the rhetorical situation of the poem has changed in that moment. Yeah. So, and by that, I mean like who is speaking and to whom and under what circumstances. I mean, it does sound like part of what we're getting here is like trial discourse, you mm-hmm. know, um, or, and then some kind of um, weird elaboration or, or um, modulation of the kind of um conversation is probably the wrong word to use, but the kind of dialogue you'd hear um, with a, with someone on a witness stand and a, a being interrogated or something like that. Um, yeah. So say, can you, can you tell us something about like, what's interesting to you about where, when the questions come into the poem, Sarah? So I read it very similarly. I detect a strong shift between to speak ill of you and Mm -hmm. what is called wellness victim witness. And the first time I read the poem, I thought that um, victim witness was Howard's kind of poetic coinage. But Mm -hmm. um, in getting ready to speak with you today, Kamran, I was looking at um, some of the literature that's kind of provided to people who might find themselves um, in a courtroom scenario like this one where they are the victim, but they are having to provide testimony as a witness Mm -hmm. uh, and to be interrogated about that testimony. And Mm -hmm. often um, that position is described with a slash between victim and witness. But here there's a shift to using a hyphen Uh between victim and witness. which I think kind of brings it more into a single position. Um, And in a a short interview that Howard did with the Toronto star about this poem, uh, she talks about this term a little bit and and describes it as a kind of um, moment in a trial where a person has to kind of be put into a witness role, which is more subject to interrogation when their kind of true position uh, is as the victim. That's fascinating. Uh, it also she, reminds me of like the dissociative states right. gestured towards earlier in the poem, like being yeah. both things. At, at being once. both yeah. things. Yeah. 
And I think that that kind of bothness comes across very clearly um, in the the rhetoric here, where it starts off a bit subtly, but um, mm-hmm. there's a kind of ventriloquy happening in my reading where um, we had begun the poem with very kind of distinct I speech with the my and the two eyes and lines one to three. Uh, then we had some kind of more general statement type of mm-hmm. lines uh, with the sentences beginning the value. And then I actually read the term victim witness as a kind of subtle apostrophe. Yeah. Uh, where it's um, like the the crown, I guess, the prosecutor. Yeah. Mm-hmm speaking to the eye, but of course, because it's the poem, it's kind of put back through the eye right? where the eye is addressing herself through this and the, term. And the, um, the kind of um, dizzying effects of that are intensified by virtue yes. of the fact that there aren't any quotation marks or, right, it's all sort of done through modulation of yeah. tone or diction or register in some way. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, what I see here with um, the term victim witness and then the use of the poet's own name, Miss Howard, um, seems to me a really interesting kind of calling of attention to apostrophe because you know, a lot of literary critics sort of say that apostrophe is the thing that makes a lyric poem most kind of lyric-y or it's right. like announcing the kind of, hey, you're in a lyric poem now quality. Right. And um, let's just say for, for people who don't know that apostrophe would be the addressing in a poem, but not necessarily a poem, of an absent um, you, right? So poems that address, you know, um, dead lover or, um, or, or some object of memory or something like that. Yeah. And that's kind of what a lot of them are, right? Right. Dead lover or inanimate object. Like there can be other things as well, of course, but those are kind of the big ones. Right. Um, so when that, poetic device that's normally used for Mm -hmm. dead lovers and inanimate objects is turned back on the eye itself. Yeah. To me, it seems very, very highly charged um, and kind of points us back to these moments earlier in the poem where the speaker's possible death or what it would have been like if that had fully happened Mm -hmm. Um, are referenced because in a way now poetic voice is being put to the task of similar types of acts. So, and, and, and if what I said at the top of this conversation about like the, the long history of lyric and personhood mm-hmm. obtains here, then in a way what we're, what we're witnessing is, the court or the crown, let's say, taking on the um, rhetorical or discursive power of constituting the self of Miss Howard. Yes. Um, Which is harrowing, um, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely the right word for it. Um, 
because it it forces us to remember that that these forms of address have effects, right? Like, um, you know, one of the really great essays ever written about apostrophe is Barbara Johnson's. And in that essay, she asks whether there is a kind of necessary or inherent connection between figurative uses of language and modes of rhetoric um, and questions of life and death, she says, of who will wield and who will receive violence in a given human society. Yeah. And for me, the moments where this poem turns to the figure of apostrophe, to um, addressing the I as victim witness and as Miss Howard, the same thing is happening there, right? That there's yeah. a kind of question about the relationship between these kind of formulaic uses of language and the question of who is going to be subject to violence. Um, yeah. Could, could you say something um, now that we're there about not the, the, I mean, the Miss Howard part of th- that question, I think you've, you've just illuminated for us really um, beautifully, but the, um, were you in fact on the moon that night, um, you know, I'm hearing in the first half of that question, a kind of standard, almost cliched, um, sort of legalistic cross-examination sort of discourse. Yeah. Were you in fact, it's, you know, like testing an alibi or something like right, that. Right. Right. But, um, but then it, it of course swerves into the kind of language that you wouldn't hear. I wouldn't think at trial unless under some very particular circumstances. So what's going on, um, with with that swerve, Sarah? Um, well, there are a couple of kind of associations that came to mind for me with the yeah. reference to being on the moon. Yeah. Um, a, a good friend of mine from a long time ago, if someone was kind of zoning out during conversation, she would always say, you're lost in space. Right, right. Um, and I think that is one kind of possible reading of being on the moon is kind of having drifted away Mm -hmm. in that sort of dissociative um, sense that we were talking about earlier. Um, But I also think of like the honeymooners and Jackie Gleason, like uh, (laughs) brandishing his fist and saying to To the the moon, moon. Alice, Um, like it's a kind of joking reference to, domestic violence um yeah that, like a, that is a very domesticated well kind of violence right? yeah yeah, right. yeah so you know the moon kind of has mm-hmm. that association with it you know especially in this type of context um but as i was saying before like reading the poem in light of the rest of the collection um i think a lot of the times the references to kind of elsewhere places in the solar system are kind of taken as interesting indicators that there are other places to go, that there Uh are kind of other worlds possible. So, you know, in that sense, being on the moon would be very advantageous because presumably that's not where the things that are the substance of this trial took place. Right. So the poem seems to have it in it to imagine a future or a, yeah. um, and a different place. Um, so to take, um, you know, we've been tossing around the word dissociative um, in this conversation, um, but maybe what we're describing now is something that in some ways resembles that 
um, pattern of thought, but 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 not in a kind of pathologizing way, but instead yeah. as um, as something that would be well. I mean, I don't want to be too like cute about this, but truly a value, you know? Yeah. Uh, right. right. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. Like there would be a true value in having another place to go. That's not right. here. Right. Well, um, well, well, so with that in mind towards the end of the poem, I mean, the, we are already near the end of the poem and, and <laughs> um, surely we must be near the end of our time together in this conversation. Did you make a choice? Um, well, that seems like a question that um, might be asked of a of a victim witness. Might also be a question that a victim witness asks of herself: mm-hmm. Did I make a choice? Did I choose this? You know, did I do something to deserve this or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, that last question seems to be directly answered. I mean. The last two lines of the poem, I made a cut, it released something, I broke the line, seems to be an answer to the question. I, maybe I misspoken when I said that it directly answered the question because it seems mm-hmm. to change the terms of the question in some way. Yeah, and, and I'm curious just what your account would be, Sarah, of like, what is it that's being claimed or reclaimed or what kind of power or, or authority does the poem want to take for itself in its ending well you know the ending has just mesmerized me since i first read this poem um it enacts what it says in such a beautiful and complex way there is that kind of substitution of terms from the question like you were talking about did you make a choice i made a cut Mm -hmm. um and the second last line i made a cut it released something. This is one of the two longest lines in the poem. Um, and it kind of brings us back to these end stopped I statements that we saw at the beginning. And it has this nice big cut in the middle mm-hmm. of it, the Seishara, the the M dash, the long dash in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last line I read is this sort of, validation or celebration of the poetic act like what could be more poetry than breaking the line like as we saw from the boyer not all poems have line breaks but most of them do it's kind of the thing that's most recognizable about poetry um but it also breaks the line of questioning Mm -hmm. in this moment right Mm -hmm. like we have all these questions I think especially that last one, like you said, did you make a choice? Like the connotations of that are so mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it breaks that um, yeah. and turns to the sort of creative act. Um, and I it, think we can think about the word line as referring to the writing of poetry, to the making of marks, but it also gives us a way to think back about some of the kind of lineage that we've been referencing in terms of sort of other poems, other discourses that come up here. Um, a that line we don't... in the sense of like a tradition or yeah, a lineage in that sense. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that we can break that too. 
Um, you know, in writing poetry, we don't just like repeat by rote the sort of things right. that we've received. Uh, that, you know, in a text like this one that seems to have all the kind of recognizable features of the lyric poem that deals with Poe's most poetical subject, yeah. you can still break the line. That can be what the poem is, is a breaking yeah. of that line. Um, so, I mean, I hope it doesn't sound Pollyannish, but to me, this is incredibly inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> um, that even in this situation and circumstance that there is a breaking of the line and a releasing of something uh through poetry Mm -hmm. how wonderful yeah um i don't think too pollyannish um (laughs) perhaps just pollyannish enough or something but um you know it's it's, is there's also i mean i guess there's something interesting also that i broke the line then also ends the, ends the line and ends yes. the poem. There's a weird yeah. kind of um, tension there. Um, but I think what you say about the line there, having all of those multiple meanings, including among them the, the sort of patrilineal um, kind of poetic tradition that we've been discussing and that the poem invokes, you know, moon and all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, it... it it um I, I i'm i'm totally persuaded by by your reading there and you know i made a cut cut by the way being another like important plath word too right mm-hmm. she has a poem about cutting her thumb called um with that title um but um it released something to my ear sounds like the the poet couldn't even say exactly what it released you know, but that there is a kind of um, unnameable and therefore um, irreducible sort of energy at work at the end of the poem that has not been um, killed or constrained or um, mutilated beyond repair by the by everything that the poem is about and that the poem enacts to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I think that that this might be the true value, right? The, hmm. That there is something unpredictable and unforeseeable and irreducible that comes out of the poetic act, the acts of cutting and breaking. Um, That even though it ends the poem here, it provides the opportunity for a different kind of continuity. Well, well, that's, um, that's a lovely um, thought, Sarah. And I think probably a good place for us to draw to a close. So um, Sarah Dowling, I want to thank you for, um, for being on the podcast, for bringing this um, poem to our attention, for, for bringing um, living poetry to our, um, (laughs) (laughs) to, to this series of conversations, Uh, perhaps the first, but certainly not the last occasion on which um, that will be true. Um, it's been a real pleasure and um, education to speak with you uh, for the last hour or so. So thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to speak with you too. Good. Okay. More soon, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs>